This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey everybody, welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. Today we're talking about the eternal begottenness, not a word, of the sun. Uh, it's going to be an exciting uh, program today. You guys stay tuned. Uh, it's going to be a fun episode. You are watching the Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Come on, come all. We're talking all things. The fun word today is going to be monogamous. Someone's already dropped it into the comment section. Uh, It's going to be a fun program today. If you don't know much about the conversation of the eternal generation of the sun, uh, this is going to be the show for you. Uh, It's inherent within Christian theology. Uh, It's like Nicene. It's like early uh, Christianity. Uh, It defines who Jesus is, how he relates to the Father and the Spirit uh, in eternity past, in in the divine trinity. And it's going to be an exciting program today as we discuss all of that. If you're new to it, don't worry. We'll break down all of these fun Greek words in layman's terms for you. Uh, But we've got uh, a lot of content just like this that we come out with every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Uh, So this is the time we have to remind you that it's a crowdfunded channel. So if you want to support, you can give in the links in the description. Top two links would be the best way to give. You can give a one-time gift on PayPal or a reoccurring gift on Patreon choose to give on Patreon, you'll get access to extra content. As low as five bucks a month, you can you know see behind the scenes stuff that we're doing here on the channel. Uh, without further ado, uh, I wanna remind you, hey, hit the subscribe button, hit the like button. If you hated the video, you just it just drove you crazy, hit the dislike button twice. Uh, let me introduce you to my co-host, my partner in crime. This is Michael Roundtree. Michael, how are you? Long time no see. Long time no see, man. Doing good, doing good. Excited to have Dr. Irons on the show. Uh, uh, Dr. Irons, you've written uh, a, a lot of articles on this subject, and you have you have this on your resume. Like, I feel like I would put this on my resume. I convinced Wayne Grudem to update his entire systematic theology book to say he believes in eternal generation. Okay, that's an overstatement, but he did change his view on eternal generation based on your writings. That's that's fascinating. So. Anyway, we'll we'll get into maybe all that, but uh, Dr. Irons, it's... Uh, I mean, it's already a... in my bio, and it's not even true. You know what I mean? I definitely put it in his. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's not true. Yeah. Uh, Josh, we've been cr- trying to work with you on that bearing false witness thing. So um, That's true. Anyway, <laughs> so Dr. Irons, uh, thanks so much for joining us and excited to, to chat a little bit. So you're over there on the West Coast. You're two hours behind us. So uh, if you could tell us maybe just a little bit about yourself and Maybe things you're working on, writing, books you have, any, any way that we can connect with you, and then we'll dive into the subject. Yeah, so I'm uh, working actually on a book on this very topic of defending the translation only begotten uh, in the New Testament as it applies to Christ. But there are other things I'm working on as well. Uh, I have a PhD in New Testament from Fuller Theological Seminary, so I'm a New Testament scholar. 
and uh, I'm also a pastor. I pastor a Reformed church in Santa Clarita and uh, just recently started that. So um, yeah, I'm really excited to be here today and to discuss this important topic with you today. It was pretty amazing uh, being at the Evangelical Theological Society uh, in 2016 when Dr. Wayne Grudem said, yeah, Lee changed my view on this. And uh, he promised at that meeting to issue a revised version of his systematic theology, which he did several years later in 2020. Oh, well, wow. uh, so I actually so. wasn't exaggerating. Like the whole reason he reissued the book was this issue or was it this and maybe a few other things? I think there were other things as well, but he said that uh, that was one of the main things he wanted to okay. revise. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of a lot of update on the nature of the Trinity and the the kind of how the eternal relations work and subordination right. and and all yeah. of that in his second edition. But uh, I I was fascinated when I saw in his new edition uh, the comments about your writings, and it made me want to go investigate your writings. And uh, mm -hmm. really blessed by that. Um, yeah. So anyway, so thank you, Josh. I, I know you had a question you wanted to kind of top off the show with. So I'm going to. Yeah, I mean, we, we use the word begotten and the word begotten, you know, especially in the Old Testament, this guy begot that guy who begot that guy who begot that guy. And it makes sense uh, for us to even teach or talk about Jesus's begottenness as like Mary giving birth to Jesus in the incarnation. But we're talking about the eternal begottenness of Jesus, right? Like Jesus is begotten in eternity past can you maybe unpack that theological principle for us for people who are coming to the the conversation and thinking that jesus is the only begotten son of god that language meaning that he came into earth right like there's a moment where he transcended in the incarnation and, and yet um we're talking about jesus always existing and yet being begotten that's a hard thing for people to conceptualize can you maybe unpack that for us yeah it is hard to conceptualize our minds start to break when we think about eternity, whether eternity past or eternity future, it just, we can't grasp it. Maybe a better way to think of it actually is instead of using the term eternal, when we say eternal generation, by the way, just to point out that word generation, um, it's easily misunderstood. It sounds like electricity generation or something like that. It's not about that. It's just the Latinized version of the concept of begetting, which means a father having a child, a father having a son. So eternal generation is simply saying that the father eternally begot the son. So that's the word generation. But then the word eternal also is a little bit confusing. As I said, our minds start to break when we think about that. But maybe a better term for it would be timeless. Hmm. Uh, if we believe in the basic idea that God, the triune God, created all things, including time, that means that God is above time. He, he mm -hmm. inhabits a timeless eternity that he's not living within the change process that is created by time. So yeah. eternal generation is simply another way of saying that uh, without any beginning in a timeless way, the father eternally begot the son. And of course, we do believe in the virgin birth. We do believe that there is a literal begetting that happened in time. Uh, the infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke both tell us that. But there's something beyond that. There's something behind that. Jesus didn't begin to exist 
the moment he was born of the Virgin. He existed eternally before that with the Father. It's interesting that in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is different from uh, Matthew and Luke because rather than starting off with the infancy narrative and the virgin birth, John goes back to eternity and says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And this word became flesh and dwelt among us, but he was eternally with the father even before he was born of a virgin. So that's what we mean by the eternal generation of the son. He's eternally begotten in a timeless way before creation. Okay. Wow. And one of the, one of your articles, I remember you quote Augustine and I think it's him that Augustine quotes Hebrews chapter one, where it refers to Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God. And maybe you can, I'm, maybe this will jog your memory of, if you can remember more precisely the quote, but, uh, but he talks about how light and the radiance of light cannot mm -hmm. be separated. Uh, as soon as you do away with the light, you do away with radiance. And if you do away with radiance, you don't have light. And mm -hmm. so Jesus, as the radiance of the glory of God, it, it's like he existed for eternity past, just like the Father. However, mm -hmm. he is called the radiance, as though he emanates from the Father, so that he's he's both one with and from God, God from God and, and light from light, as it says in the Nicene Creed. Uh, am I am I <laughs> recalling your article correctly in your quote of Augustine there? Yes, you are recalling it correctly. Uh, I, I really, I, I just, his name I, I Augustine, to, but yeah, Augustine does use that argument. Would you like say the grass? Yeah. St. Augustine or August. Anyway, never mind. Educated people prefer Augustine, but I say Augustine because in Latin it would have been pronounced Augustinus. So that sounds like Augustine, right? So that's, that's interesting. Well, you I know, think most... it should be our aim on this show to try to pronounce the name as many different ways as possible. So let's, okay, let's, we could do let's that. keep that going. Uh, <laughs> we'll just keep making all the okay. academics upset. Well, I, I'm going to do two questions in a row here then. And because uh, I want to follow up on, you know, Josh came in with like, hey, we can understand that uh, like a begottenness associated with the incarnation, because in the incarnation, there's a beginning point in time, which is precisely yeah. how we think of somebody yeah. begetting somebody and uh and your point was well but the eternal generation the eternal begottenness means it's in a timeless eternity it didn't just like jesus didn't begin two thousand years ago john 1 1 like you quoted in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god okay so i want to kind of piggyback off of that for a moment and give you some what would be by some evangelicals a sort of pushback and a common uh, verse that's used to mm -hmm. depict eternal generation, uh, specifically Psalm 2-7, uh, you know, where it says, you know, of the son of the Christ, today I have begotten you. I have it right here. It's quoted in Acts 13. And the Apostle Paul seems to apply this to the resurrection. And uh, so I'll read it first and make a comment. Uh, but this is Paul talking. So God has fulfilled his promise to those of us who are the descent, uh, his descendants by raising Jesus. So the resurrection is in view. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have fathered you or begotten you. Okay. And then he goes on and he talks some more about resurrection there. So that's Acts 13, 33 and 34. And so uh, 
some people will say, well, I don't know about this eternal generation thing, because uh, specifically as it applies to Psalm 2-7, uh, because Psalm 2-7 says that Jesus was begotten in the day of his resurrection. And so you can't use Psalm 2-7 to defend eternal generation. What would you say about that? Yeah, that's a, a very common argument, uh, but it misses the fact that Psalm 2-7 is not only quoted here in Acts, but it's also quoted in the epistle to the Hebrews, in Hebrews one and Hebrews 5. And in those passages, it is not applied to the resurrection. It's understood in an eternal, timeless sense. But how do we interpret Acts 13 then? Well, first of all, notice that Jesus is not declared to be the Son of God only at his resurrection. Just read the Gospels. Mm -hmm. He's declared to be the Son of God at the transfiguration, when the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son. He's declared to be the Son of God before that at his baptism. Same thing, the voice from heaven. He's even declared to be the Son of God at the virgin birth. We see that in Luke 135, uh, that the holy thing that will be born in you will be called the Son of the Most High. So the Sonship of Christ is something that existed eternally, but it is manifested uh, in the history of Christ's earthly life. At various points uh, and so the resurrection of Christ is the most public and uh, full manifestation and declaration of a sonship that already existed uh, a helpful passage to connect this is uh, Romans 1 Romans 1 uh, 3 to 5 where Paul is introducing his letter to the Romans by quoting an ancient uh, Christological formula, and it says uh, that the gospel is concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So it's not that he became the son or was begotten at his resurrection, but that he was publicly declared to be the son in power by his resurrection. Right. So then you would say maybe, and I think it was, I'll call him for your sake, Augustine. I think it was Augustine who spoke of the eternal today of Psalm 2-7, right. where uh, much like in Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, that, that apply to the Exodus generation, but it applies to us. Who's, today we're reading the scripture. It applied to when, when yeah. the psalm was written by David, that there's this it, when when God lives in a timeless eternity, today means something a little different than it means to you and I who inhabit time. Uh, is that kind of how you would take the today yeah. of Psalm two seven? That's how I would take it. Correct. Okay. Amen. So so how do we if we've got verses that talk about his his son, hey you are my son whom I'm well pleased. We have the kind of language of maybe you know perpetual sonship, sure. But like what verses would you look at? And would you be wanting to hang, you know, uh, your theological hat on when it came to uh, Jesus pre-incarnation being eternally begotten? Like what verses would you be aiming at to show that Jesus has always been proceeding from the Father through this mm -hmm. eternal generation? Mm -hmm. So there are a number of passages. Um, I've been, you know, talking a lot about this translation, only begotten, as... Uh, the five places in the writings of John that 
refer to Christ as God's only begotten Son. But that's not the only basis for the doctrine of uh, the eternal generation of the Son. Uh, you already mentioned Hebrews 1.3, that he's the brightness of his glory and the outshining uh, of his, of his uh, the exact representation of his being and the outshining of his glory. Uh, there's also Colossians 1, uh, 15 and 16, that uh, he is the image of the invisible God. Uh, but one of the most important ones is a verse also in the Johannine literature that does not use the language of begetting per se, but it has the concept. And that is John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And uh, that's clearly an eternal grant, because if the Father grants the Son to have life in himself, life in himself is not derived life. Life in himself is uh, the attribute of aseity, which is the Latin term for from oneself, having life in and of himself, from himself, not from derived from another. If he has life in himself and it's been granted to him by the Father, then that must be an eternal or timeless grant. Uh, Augustine made that argument as well. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of passages. It's not just simply the only begotten texts. Uh, there's also some Old Testament passages in the Greek Septuagint. We mentioned Psalm 2-7, uh, You are my son, this day I have begotten you. Uh, there's also Psalm or Proverbs 8, the wisdom figure is uh, a picture of Christ. He was with God at the creation and it uses the language of begetting there as well in, in Proverbs 8. So there are a lot of passages that all go into this doctrine, um, not just simply the only begotten texts. Okay. And can, then, I, can I ask a follow-up on, on the idea sure. of the, the Son receiving life from the Father? How do we yeah. protect the idea of, of like, uh, I'm going to butcher this again, I think it's autotheos, like the idea of the autonomy... Right. The, the the autonomy of the divine nature like jesus the father we could say is absolutely god of his own ontology uniquely um in his own ontology if he is giving life to the son how can we say that the son is also autotheos in that he is within his own very nature god if he's somehow receiving something from the father as it pertains to life um could you maybe weigh in on that yeah, so this is a whole debate in theology. It derives from Calvin. Calvin was uh, well known as being a defender of this concept that Jesus is autotheos, that is, he is God of himself. He's not uh, a secondary deity who derived his deity from some other source. He's not a created deity. Um, he is God in himself, and he appealed to the fact that the uh, scriptures refer to Jesus as Yahweh, applying the title Lord to him. Lord in all caps. Whenever you see Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's the uh, English version of Yahweh. And that title Lord is applied to Jesus in the New Testament many times. Uh, So the fact that Jesus is Lord in all caps, he is Yahweh, and Yahweh means that he is I am who I am, the God who is, who has being in and of himself. He's not a created being. He is the creator. Uh, that doctrine of the autotheotes of the son, the autotheotesness of the son, uh, is uh, a key doctrine that Calvin taught and 
has always been affirmed, uh, but it's also been used incorrectly as a wedge to try to critique this doctrine of eternal generation. So mm -hmm. Calvin himself did not deny the doctrine of eternal generation. He affirmed it. But the followers of Calvin, some of them, especially B.B. Warfield and then those who followed him, have tried to make Calvin's doctrine of the aseity of the Son um, a weapon to critique the concept of eternal generation. And the answer to how those two things can both be true, because see, it's, it does admittedly seem like a contradiction, right? <laughs> how could he be God in and of himself and yet also be eternally begotten of the Father? The answer to how both of those things can be true is that we have to distinguish two ways of predicating things of the Son. To predicate means to, to say that the Son is something. He's divine or he's man or whatever. When we predicate something of the Son, there are two ways that we can do it. There is absolute predication and relative predication. And this, is, this goes back to Augustine. Augustine in his treatise on the Trinity uh, made this very distinction. And Calvin himself appealed to it. So Calvin himself says, go back and look at Augustine, where he distinguishes between these two ways, absolute and relative predication. And so he says, what, are the, what is the difference between those two things? So absolute predication is when we predicate something of the Son as divine. Relative predication is when we predicate something of the Son as the second person of the Trinity. So we have this basic doctrine of the Trinity, right? one God and three persons. And there are some attributes that we ascribe to God that are absolute. God is immutable. He's eternal. He's the creator. Those are absolute predications that apply to all three persons, but as God. But there are individual uh, attributes that we can, we can predicate to each person of the Trinity that are unique. The Father is the one who begets. The Son is the one who is begotten. The Spirit is the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Father is not begotten, the Spirit is not begotten, only the Son is begotten. So Calvin said that when we talk about this doctrine, that the Son has aseity, that is, his being is of himself, not from another, not derived from some other source, which would make him a creature. If he, was, if, if he, if he wasn't ase, if he wasn't from himself, then he would be a creature. But when we predicate that doctrine of aseity to the Son, or the autotheos doctrine to the Son, we're doing absolute predication, not relative predication. In other words, we're saying that the Son, as to his deity, is autotheos. We're not saying the Son, as to his personhood, is autotheos. Because as to his personhood, he is begotten of the Father. Mm. And so the best way to, it is sort of paradoxical, admittedly, but the best way to to put it is this, is that this status that he has of being underived, of being the self-sufficient, ase, eternal God, is an attribute that he derives from the Father. <laughs> hmm. Sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. And the reason it's not is because he receives that eternally and timelessly. There never was a time when he did not have aseity from the Father. And that's exactly what John 5.26 says, it says, just as the Father has life in himself, 
though also he has granted the son to have life in himself. You see, it's, mm. it's, it's a little bit of a paradox there, but it's clearly there in the text. And so the best way of, just, of putting this then is to say, uh, to use the language of, not, it's not that the father generates the divine nature of the son, because if that was the case, then the son would be a creature. It's that the son uh, receives his divine nature by an eternal communication of essence from the father to the son in such a manner that he is then in possession of all of the attributes of deity. Hmm. The father communicates his deity to the son. He communicates his divine nature to the son through eternal generation, resulting in the fact that the son is in full possession of the divine nature without beginning timelessly and without change. So the church fathers used these, these adjectives to describe eternal generation. They said it didn't have a beginning. It's, it's without beginning. It's without time. It's without change. And it's also without passion, meaning there's no uh, active and passive uh, acting upon going uh, on in this process. The son mm. does not acted upon uh, the way a human father begets a human son. I love it. So, well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm just thinking about this comment from, uh, from red writer in our chat. This makes my brain hurt. Amen. Red writer. That's how I feel too. And this is actually why I think for Josh, uh, for Josh and me, the, uh, the subject of the Trinity is probably our favorite to talk about because every time I talk about it, it makes my brain hurt. And I feel like that's maybe yeah. a good thing when we're talking about an infinite God. So um, anyway, I, it's a you know, that's... Thing. If, if, as soon as you think you understand it perfectly, you're probably entering into some Trinitarian heresy. <laughs> some kind that's of idolatry, right. yeah. That's right. Well, so I want to come to this. Uh, so the, those who are pushing back on eternal generation, uh, I'm going to quote 1 John 5.18. And the question I want to ask you is, why does, if nothing else sealed the deal, like if none of the other verses, and we'll get to the uh, the verses in the book of John, the five the five specific verses that use the language of only begotten um, or one and only, depending on which camp you fall in. But you know, cards on the table. Uh, I'm an only begotten guy. Um, <laughs> I'm in favor of only begotten. I'm not only begotten. Anyway, wow, that, I'm. Uh, I was. That's. Yeah, no, yeah. Glad you put the brakes there. I'm, I'm not Jesus, all right? So First uh, <laughs> okay. John 5, 18, I want to ask you the question, why doesn't this seal the deal? I mean, I feel like maybe some of the other verses should have sealed the deal, and you walked through Hebrews and Colossians and uh, another a number of other verses. I feel like those should have sealed the deal. And if those hadn't sealed the deal, maybe the Nicene Creed should have sealed the deal. But First John 5, 18, why, wasn't, why wouldn't this seal the deal? It says... We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So the description of Jesus here as born of God, unless you affirm Arianism, it seems as though you have to say eternal generation is a thing. So 
talk to me about first John five eighteen, and for those who oppose eternal generation, what, what's the, how do they respond to that? Unless they're Aryan, which is obviously off the table for us. Yeah, well, I believe you're right. I think that John first John five eighteen is referring to the fact that the son is the one who is begotten of God. It says born of God in most translations, but it's actually the word begotten of God. It's, it's the verb uh, to, to beget. So, and it's in the passive, uh, he is begotten of God. So I agree with you that that does seal the deal, but there is a way to get around it. Uh, the way is that there is a textual variant. And one of the textual variants says that he who was born of God keeps himself. And therefore it's not referring to Christ. It's referring to the believer. Uh, so the one who has been born, born again, born of God, keeps himself, and the evil one does not touch him. Uh, of course, that doesn't seem like a very legitimate textual variant, mm -hmm. because where does the Bible say that? Where does the Bible say that we keep ourselves? It's always the True. triune God who keeps us, right? So I, I agree that that textual variant is not correct, and that it's talking about Christ, the Son. Um, but that's how they would get around it is by appealing to that textual variant. Okay. And, now, and we, so we mentioned it. As, oh, go ahead. now as far as textual variants go, like, are we talking about super, super minority textual variant? Like no one actually re like really believes this is a, a reliable text. Yeah. Right. So yeah, go ahead. Answer it. I haven't checked the uh, details of that. I'm not oh. a text critic. So I really, Sorry, I wouldn't try to put you on the spot. Is. Yeah, expecting you to have textual variants memorized, but yeah. <laughs> Josh, why don't you follow up? No worries. Yeah, well, let's. I'd like to talk about the the Greek word that we kind of started the program with, monogenes, mm -hmm. um, the idea that Jesus is only begotten, the only begotten God, monogenes theos, like this idea that Jesus is yeah. only begotten, and this language is often used to refer uh, in, in like a lot of Bible translation as only begotten in other translations, a lot of more modern translations, uh, we see unique and only. Um, yeah. Do you think that unique is an appropriate translation of monogenes? Uh, and why would you, if so, why, why not? That kind of thing. Yeah. So um, the, the, the term uh, monogenes, and I'm not 100% sure I'm pronouncing it absolutely correctly, probably the most technical pronunciation would be to soften the G and make it monogenes, something like that. But I'll just say monogenes, which is my English version of Greek, uh, just so we can speak and communicate. The term monogenes uh, occurs nine times in the New Testament. In uh, four of the cases, it's just used in non-Christological contexts, uh, you know, a, in the Gospels, somebody who has an only child gets healed or whatever. But five of them are Christological, and those are John 1, 14, John 1, 18, the famous John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3, 3 18, and then 1 John 4, 9. And traditionally, going back to the King James, and even before that to Tyndale, and even before that to the Vulgate, uh, it's been understood as only begotten. But in the 20th century, uh, scholars began to question that translation. And uh, the first uh, English, modern English version 
that departed from only begotten was the RSV, the Revised Standard Version. Uh, the New Testament came out in 1946, I believe it was. And uh, of course, that influenced many subsequent modern English versions like the New International Version. Um, the argument that was made was scholars argued that uh, if you look at that term monogenes in uh, Greek literature before the New Testament, uh, there are cases where it does not mean only begotten. There are cases where it means something closer to unique. Uh, an example of that is um, in, uh, well, this is not before the New Testament. This is right around, just after the New Testament. But in the Apostolic Fathers in First Clement, uh, there's this uh, argument that Clement is making about the, the resurrection of the dead is something that was prepared for by this myth of the phoenix. The phoenix is this bird that, you know, it makes a nest of spices and then it dies. And then uh, 500 years later, it gets reborn. And that's like a, a myth that prefigures the resurrection. But in that context, Clement says that the phoenix is a monogenese creature. It's a very unique creature. And it's clearly not being used in the sense of only begotten there. And so because of arguments like that, plus they argued that if you look at the etymology, now etymology is a dangerous argument to use, but some of these scholars said, look at the etymology. Uh, mono means only, but genes, the genes part at the end, uh, does not mean begotten. What it means is kind. So they said, therefore, monogenes means only one of its kind or unique. Um, the answer to that is that it is true that there are cases where monogenes is used in a non-begotten sense, where it just means unique. Uh, Eusebius has an example of this where he talks about one of the church buildings that Constantine built, and he said it was unparalleled in size and beauty. And that word unparalleled in English is rendering that word monogenes. Um, so it does, it does occur. It's not the majority of the cases, but it does occur. Uh, the thing that they, these scholars missed, though, was that all of the times when it means unique, it's never referring to biological processes, never referring to having offspring. It's always being used in reference to something else, whether it's a building or the phoenix, something that's not in a familial uh, procreative context. But in the majority of the cases, even in pre-Christian Greek, even in classical Greek, even in Hesiod and so on, it's used in the context of an only child. And so uh, it's one of those words that has more than one meaning. This is a common thing in language that words can have multiple meanings. It's called polysemy, which is just a technical term for it has multiple meanings, like the word bank in English. It could be the bank where you put your money or it could be the side of a river. So monogenes is polysemous. It has multiple meanings. And the mistake that these scholars made was to assume that uh, because it can be used in a non-begotten sense, therefore, it has to always be in this other meaning of unique. But it's just not true. And there are plenty of cases where it clearly does mean either only born or only begotten. Now, there's a slight nuance of difference between those two 
only born and only begotten. Only begotten is slightly more technical and focusing on the father's role of procreation. Whereas only born is kind of ambiguous. It could refer to the mother or the father. Um, probably in, in most cases, in non-Christological, non-theological contexts, where it doesn't mean unique, it probably just means only born or only child or only offspring. Uh, but I would argue that in the Johannine uses, where it's Christological, I think it does mean only begotten, which is a slightly more, you know, there's more baggage there, there's more content there to it. And I think you can make some arguments to support that. One is what we just mentioned, 1 John 5.18 actually uses the verb begotten of Christ. That's not the word monogenes, that's the word genao, to beget. There's also John 5.26, which doesn't use either monogenes or genao, but it does have the concept, just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. What does it mean to grant life? What does it mean for a father to grant life to a son? It means to beget. So the concept mm -hmm. is there. Um, and then furthermore, this is really critical. In the two cases in John 1, uh, John 1, 14 and John 1, 18, uh, it's very interesting because unlike the other three Johannine cases, John 3, 16, John 3, 18, and 1 John 4, 9, uh, the word son is not there. So in John 3, 16, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his monogenes son, his only begotten son. Uh, but in John 1, 14 and John 1, 18, the word son, the noun son is not present and monogenes is not being used as an adjective to qualify the noun son. Hmm. Rather, in, in John 1, uh, the, the word monogenes occurs in one of two ways, either absolutely, just by itself, the only begotten, that's in verse 14, or as a qualifier of the noun God, John 1.18, the only begotten God. Now there's a textual variant there, some say son, but most scholars think it says God. But in those two cases, it clearly has to mean only begotten because the translation unique doesn't fit. Uh, what would it mean to say, uh, so John 1.14, for example, what would it mean to say if we were to translate that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and built. We beheld his glory, glory as of the unique from the Father, full of grace and truth. It doesn't make sense. It clearly says mm -hmm. we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The unique God who is in the bosom of the Father? No, it's the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father. If we said that Jesus is the unique God, that would be Jesus only uh, anti-Trinitarian theology. That'd be saying that Jesus is God and there is no Trinity. <laughs> so clearly in those two cases, you have to translate it as only begotten. There's really no other way around it. Yeah. So most of the modern English versions have kind of gotten swept up in this whole thing that goes back to... Uh, the Revised Standard Version. There are still a few that hold on to the traditional translation. Uh, the New King James does, the Legacy Standard Bible does, uh, and also the Modern English Version 
as well, at least in three of the Johannine cases it does. And the New American Standard Bible, before they revised it uh, three years ago, it also held to only begotten. That was in 1995. And also, I think the earliest one, 1997. Oh, no. that. So NASB revised away from only begotten is what you're saying. Yeah. In 2020, like the, new, the New American Standard Dang. dropped begotten and went with only. Huh. Okay. So what do you think is driving this? Because it feels to me like, uh, okay, now granted, you can think that it means one and only or one of a kind or unique. You can take the five Johannine usages and those translations, and you can say, I actually think it means unique and one or one and only, and still hold to eternal generation. I, you technically can. However, I guess my question is, uh, how can you, how can you not hold, how can you be Trinitarian? How can you be, uh, maybe, maybe the question is more like, why is there not more trepidation amongst evangelicals toward questioning eternal generation? Because we're talking about yeah. questioning the Nicene Creed, which was universally agreed upon by the church fathers. Why, why do you think right. that we're not more hesitant to say, ah, you know what? Nicene Creed was wrong and I'm right. Like, I don't know. I've, again, I'm not suggesting that everyone who translates this one word differently thinks that way, but many do, and many use it as a, uh, a tool in their arsenal to say eternal generation is not a thing. So I'm just, I, I don't get that. What, what's going on? Yeah. No, it's a, it's a concern. I, I think that, honestly, it's not an intentional thing of saying, oh, the Nicene Creed is wrong. It's just that evangelicals have forgotten They've forgotten about the Nicene Creed. Now, recently, in the last 10 years or so, there's been a revival of Trinitarian orthodoxy going back to the Church Fathers, retrieving you know, what the Church Fathers taught and retrieving the Nicene Creed and so on. And that's great. Uh, and so now people are beginning to go back and question some of these things. But back in the days, you know, the earlier part of the 20th century, before this recent revival of Trinitarian theology, uh, yeah, evangelicals just they just forgot. They forgot about the Nicene Creed. You know, it's just kind of a an extreme version of sola scriptura. Just saying, look, you know, I, the Bible is all we need. We don't need man-made traditions and man-made creeds. Just me and my Bible, and I can interpret the Bible for myself. Um, and so they kind of just didn't realize that they were heading down this path that was uh, creating a contradiction between, or an apparent contradiction, I should say, between what their Bible says and what the Nicene Creed says. But in, in mm -hmm. churches that are beginning to retrieve and are saying, hey, maybe we should you know, recite the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed in worship, uh, they're beginning to see, oh, there's a little bit of a tension here, isn't there, between what it says in our creed and what it says in our English versions now. And so that's for me is probably the just my own personal uh, passion for this is that I would really like to see the modern English versions go back to only begotten uh, in order to show that our Bible, our English Bible, is in line with the creed and to show that the creed uh, was not wrong to emphasize this doctrine of the fact that the son is the only begotten son of God, eternally begotten. 
uh, it's interesting just to briefly read what the creed says. Uh, this is the version of 381 at the second ecumenical council it says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God. And in Greek, that's monogenes, the same word. But then it says, begotten of the father before all ages. Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. So that last phrase, begotten, not made, that's the key right there. That's the doctrine of eternal generation. If he's begotten, not made, that means he had no beginning. That means he's timelessly begotten. But they're obviously saying the logic of the creed, the way the church fathers wrote it, they're obviously saying that this concept that he is begotten, not made, is tied to this basic confession that we have, which is that Jesus is the only begotten son of God. What that means is that he is begotten, not made. So according to the logic of the church fathers, who, by the way, they were native Greek speakers, unlike us, right? So they're reading the New Testament in Greek, and they're seeing the word monogenes there, and they're clearly interpreting it to mean only begotten, not unique. Uh, the, the logic of the authors of the creed is that the eternal generation of the Son, the fact that he is eternally or timelessly begotten, that he's not a creature who had a beginning in time as the Arians taught, that doctrine is deeply rooted in this key Christological title of Christ as the only begotten Son of God. And so I think it's a good idea then for us to revise our English versions to alleviate this tension. Otherwise, people will be reading the creed and then reading their Bible and saying, wait a second, where does the creed get this from? Mm. If this concept of only begotten is only found in this man-made document called the Nicene Creed, but it's not found in the Bible, then where are they getting this from? Oh, they must be just making it up. It must just be their own, spinning out their own theology based on Greek philosophy or something. And so we want to yeah. force all that and say, no, this is actually biblical. The church fathers were simply exegeting scripture. And so to facilitate that clarity of the biblical argument that they're making, I think it's helpful to have our English versions be in line with the Nicene Creed rather than be at odds with it. Would you, would you be comfortable? Because it seems at the top of the show, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, correct me if I'm wrong, that you said that you know, monogamous seems to have multiple meanings right like it could mean unique and it could mean only begotten do you want to unilaterally every time monogamous is used to use uh, only begotten rather than unique or do you think that each text has to on its own merit be determined as unique or only begotten? like i'm thinking of like hebrews eleven seventeen, right like that uh, isaac is is abraham's only right. begotten son and it, and it seems like in that text for example and again, correct and give insight to this. It looks like there, Abraham has multiple kids, most popularly Ishmael, but maybe Genesis 25 would suggest that there's like maybe seven total kids with, with the addition of Ishmael uh, that Abraham yeah. has after Sarah dies, right? So um, it appears that there's more than just one and only begotten wouldn't make sense potentially. So maybe way into that, like is it every usage of monogamous that you would want to see changed or just the ones that, like you had mentioned, like in 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 First John or in John chapter one, right? The only yeah. begotten Son of God. Like, which which ones would you want to change? I want to change the five Johannine ones. Okay. So John one fourteen, John one eighteen, etc. 
that's those are the ones that need to say only begotten. The four non-Christological cases, Luke 7, 12, Luke 8, 42, Luke 9, 38, and Hebrews eleven seventeen, which you just quoted about Isaac, it'd be fine to translate those as only son. Actually, one of them is only daughter uh, or only child. That'd be legitimate. Although none of these cases are unique. None of these cases should be translated as unique because these are all familial contexts having to do with offspring. Uh, so the, there are cases in extra biblical Greek where it needs to be translated as unique. We mentioned the Phoenix and first Clement and so on. There are a handful of cases in extra biblical Greek where unique is, is the right translation. But in the Bible, they're all familial contexts. The Bible never uses this word in reference to the Phoenix or to a building. It always uses it in reference to a son or a daughter. But among those, I would still distinguish between the translation only son and the translation only begotten. And I would say that only begotten is what we need to do for the five Christological passages in John. Uh, or the four in John and one in First John, and the the non Christological but still familial can be translated as only son or only child. Now, how do we deal with Hebrews eleven? Hebrews eleven seventeen is probably one of the uh, biggest arguments that I get. So, people who push back to, to me and say, "No, you're wrong in wanting to go back to only begotten." How do you deal with Hebrews eleven seventeen? 17? Um, and my answer is this. Well, first, let's read the text. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So there, uh, it's interesting that even my critics... Uh, don't translate it as unique. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange thing that even those who are opposed to me and say, no, you're wrong to say only begotten is the correct translation because how do you deal with Hebrews eleven seventeen? Even they don't translate it as unique. They don't say that Abraham was in the act of, oper of oper offering up his unique one. In Greek, it's just the word monogenes without a noun mm -hmm. to support it. So usually it's usually monogenes is used as an adjective qualifying a noun like son or daughter, a monogenes son, a monogenes daughter. Here in Hebrews eleven seventeen in the Greek it just says that Abraham was in the act of offering up his only begotten or his monogenes. And so but what's interesting is that even they, rec even my critics recognize that the correct translation here is he was in the act of offering up his only son. All of the translations that have gotten rid of only begotten translated that way. The RSV, mm -hmm. the NIV, all the modern English versions translated as his only son. And so we both, both of us, both sides of the debate, whether me on this side defending only begotten or my critics on the other side who reject only begotten and say we should only translate this word as unique. We both have to deal with this problem of how do you explain the fact that 
the author of Hebrews refers to Isaac as Abraham's only son, even though he had other sons, other children. And of course, at the time when, when this happened, he's quoting here from, uh, he's alluding to uh, Genesis 21 and 22. At the time, Ishmael was the other son. And uh, the answer, of course, is that Ishmael was not the true son. Ishmael was rejected. He was, it even says in our text, Hebrews 11, verse 18, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's a quotation from Genesis 21, the passage just before the passage of the offering up of Isaac and the almost sacrifice of Isaac. In Genesis 21, that's the story where uh, Abraham put on a party uh, for the weaning of his son Isaac. And at the party, at the feast, uh, Ishmael was making fun of Isaac. And as a result, Sarah was very upset. And she said to Abraham, I want you to expel Ishmael from the family. And Ishmael didn't want to do that, but God came to him and said, do it because through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So it's very clear that even though Ishmael is one of the biological offsprings of Abraham, it's very clear in the text that he is being expelled from the family and that he is not the rightful heir and that Isaac is the one through whom the offspring will be named, that Isaac is the true legitimate child. And so, obviously, Isaac is being called Abraham's only son, not in a literal sense, but rather in an extended metaphorical sense that he's the only true heir, the only true descendant through whom the promises will be continued and who will inherit the promises that God is making to Abraham. Hmm. Okay, now, um, just another question I want to ask about why some people prefer unique over begotten, because if they, if they can't so much go to the Greek literature at the time and say, well, the preponderance of evidence and existing Greek literature at the time points in the way of unique. If they can't go, really do that, and if they can't really say, well, you know, the Greek fathers, this is how they interpret it, and this was, uh, this was their native language. They can't go there. It, it, could it be that, and I've heard this before, that there's an attempt to avoid Aryan heresies, that this sounds like some sort of subordinationism to say that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, seems to make him less than the Father. So let's just uh, protect the unique, uh, or protect the deity of the Son and try to leave this begotten language out of it. And let's just say it's un unique and one and only. I mean, do you hear that? I, I, I don't think a scholar would say it in such a crass way, but do you ever hear that kind of objection? And what would your response be to it be? Yeah, so... I have heard that objection. Um, I think that the response is, well, look at the Nicene Creed and look at Athanasius and the church fathers who were all uh, dead set against Arianism, dead set against any kind of ontological subordination of the son to the father. And yet these very church fathers and even the very Nicene Creed, which was written to combat Arianism, explicitly use this language that the son is begotten, not made. Mm -hmm. that, was Ari that was Athanasius's whole argument against Arianism. Mm -hmm. so, so Arius believed that the son was a creature, that he was created. Mm -hmm. And the Nicene Creed and Athanasius are saying, no, he's not a creature. He's not created. He's not made. He's begotten. Yeah. 
In other words, there's nothing inherent in begottenness right. that suggests Arianism is true. You can right. be begotten and not made, just like the creed right. said. And in fact, that was that was the argument used against right. Ar uh, Arianism. Mm -hmm. okay, and this is critical it. because Athanasius said, look, what is the difference between these two concepts of begetting and making? These are radically different concepts. Uh, making is something external, like, uh, you know, just think of a craftsman making something, building a house, making a chair, making a, you know, a piece of art. That thing that he's making is totally external to him, it has no identity with him. It's a, it's a creature of his making that is ontologically distinct from him. And has you can't say that that creature is any way like him or shares his nature. Whereas begetting, when a father begets a son, the father is passing on his nature to the son. That's why the son is called the image of the invisible God. That's why he's called Hebrews 1, 3, the outshining of his glory and the exact representation of his being. He has identity of nature with the father because he is the father's son. And so begetting and making are completely different concepts. Begetting, the eternal generation or begetting of the son, makes the son a possessor of the full divine nature. That's why in the logic of the Nicene Creed, they begin with this idea of only begotten. And then from that, they extract the begotten term. And then they play with that. And they say begotten, not made. And then they conclude from that, that therefore he is homoousios, that is, he is of the same nature, of the same essence as the Father. Now, of course, we do have this one major, major distinction, which is that in human begetting, the Father precedes the existence of the Son in time. And so that's why we have to say that this begetting is timeless. And so there's a major difference but it's just a metaphor. It's a way of trying to understand the uniqueness of the father-son relationship. And the focus of that is on the identity of essence. There are many things that we could, that could come to mind when we think about a relationship of a father and a son. The Bible obviously emphasizes this relationship. The Gospel of John, you know, talks about it on almost every page <laughs> that the son is this unique being who has this filial a sonship relationship with his father. But there are many things that you could be, that could come to mind when you're thinking about what does it mean to be a son? You could think about perhaps an authority relationship. The father has authority over the son. Uh, that's what Wayne Grudem focuses on. Or you could focus on the intimacy of the relationship of love, that they see eye to eye, that they're like, you know, arm in arm, father and son on a mission together. In other words, we could look at it in kind of modern psychological terms. But none of that is what is going on in the biblical metaphor of the father-son relationship as applied to the Trinity. The whole point of the biblical language that the father eternally begets the son, that the son is the father's eternal son, the whole point of it is just as a human father passes on his nature to the son so that the son is in the image of the Father and shares his nature, so also in this divine begetting. And that was Athanasius's whole argument. If you look at his treatises against the Arians, that was the essence of his argument against Arianism.
<laughs> the essence. <laughs> no, okay. Uh, I digress. Uh, ser- uh, on a serious note, uh, and maybe this is the way that we wrap it up, um, I'd be curious, do you think that Unique is somehow anti-Nicene? Like it's just like against the Nicene Creed? I, do you think that it's inherently against that? Do you think that maybe it just sets a dangerous precedent that will undermine the creed and create room for later you know, historical opponents of the creed? Like what, what do you think is really at stake here as we wrap this all up? And what would you encourage people... I guess to do, you know, we all seems like most of our modern translations are, you know, do, do you want us to like black it out with a Sharpie and write above it, you know, monogamous only begotten, like just put our foot <laughs> yeah. down. Like w- what would you expect us to do um, with this? So, so one question, do you yeah. think it's anti-Nicene? What do you think the ramifications are and what should we do in response to that? Um, it's not anti-Nicene in the sense of, uh, that if you if you reject this translation, that therefore you're going to be an Arian, you, it is possible to be orthodox in your view of of the deity of Christ and not be an Arian, and then still also think, well, I'm just not sure about this translation. I think that maybe the modern English versions are correct, but it is it is anti-Nicene in the sense that it creates doubt, and it creates a if you go with the modern English translations that take out begotten and just say only, um, it creates doubt in our minds and it creates a, an unhealthy distance between ourselves and the church fathers. And it makes us question, well, were the church fathers wrong? Did they, did they get it wrong? Were they um, misusing uh, the Greek New Testament to support a doctrine that is not really taught in scripture? Uh, so it, it's a, a dangerous path to go down because then it calls into question whether the Nicene Creed is, is truly biblical. Is it really biblical? Um, and so we want to, I think we want to say that it is biblical and that they were right in their interpretation of that word. What do I recommend that people do? Um, there's different options. One option is that you could use a translation that, that still retains only begotten, whether the Legacy Standard Bible or the the pre uh, 2020 version of the New American Standard Bible or the New King James. I myself uh, like the ESV, and I also think that the NIV is by and large a very good translation for the most part. Uh, but I disagree with the way they handle these five texts uh, that deal with um, that use the word only begotten. And so for my part, I just simply, when I'm reading those uh, passages, I will just simply correct it and just substitute my own translation. (laughs) So, (laughs) Okay. Well, it's about that time of the show for us to maybe make a little close, uh, summarize it all together, put it in a little nugget and hand it to the people. So... Uh, Josh, I'm going to give it to you first and give you a chance to do that. What is it you want people to walk away from, uh, walk away with? And then Dr. Irons love for you to do the same thing. And then we'll just kind of close out the show. What is the, the, maybe one thing you would love for people to walk away with Josh, why don't you go first? I mean, I, I guess, uh, I would have to just say that, um, we, we talked about the top of the show that the Trinity is one of these things that cannot be meticulously described, but can be generally defined. 
Um, and, and I think that a conversation like this for I maybe, maybe even the average listener can feel kind of exhausting. Like hey, you're using all this Greek language. You're talking about all these theological technicalities. Why does all of this matter? Well, um, if anything matters, it's God, right? And, and like trying to understand him as the Bible clearly describes him. Um, uh, that's, that's good. But then also we, we acknowledge that because he's God, he is infinite and my pea-sized ant brain cannot possibly comprehend the infinite. And I, I think that, that in some sense that we, we gaze, um, if you will, through a mirror darkly, like dimly lit, like we don't quite see things perfectly. Um, but, but he has made himself known and there is in some sense a real perspicuity in the scriptures, uh, that, that give us a knowledge of who God is. And I would say that we, it's our job as Christians to love God with all of our heart and our mind, right? Like there's something about that, that aspect of our intellect that God longs for us to know him. And I think that some of these conversations, you know, people can be watching this. If you've gotten all the, if the evangelist at the church has watched all the way to this point, I just want to remind you that God, the Bible says to love God with your mind because they get so frustrated with these kinds of conversations. They're like, why are Christians, you know, still trying to, you know, break apart this Greek word when like there's lost people out there dying and going to hell. And uh, I would just say that for every, every piece of knowledge of God, I, I love the, like in first Peter, he talks about that, that grace and maybe it's second Peter, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, and, and knowing God, there's something that's found in knowing him. And, and I would encourage believers to expand their knowledge of God uh, through the, the study of rigorous theology. And I know that might sound exhausting, uh, but I promise you, your worship um, elevates when you know God and you worship him in truth. Your, your life practice and, and knowing him, it, it elevates in a sense, not, not because you're better because you know stuff, but, but because you're humbled in knowing stuff. Um, and I would just encourage people to, to press in to the opportunity of like knowing God all the more and in the beauty that's found in that. Um, is that what you're looking for, Michael? Yeah, I think I, I'd give that like a, a six or a, I mean, it was, it was pretty good. I appreciate that. No. Yeah. As far as closing <laughs> thoughts go. Yeah. No, uh, well, I'm actually going to insert myself here and just say kind of along the lines of what, what we've said a little bit, but just want to, uh, maybe make an appeal to Protestants. I saw some people in the chat like, you know, who cares about the Nicene Creed? It's the Bible and just give me the Bible. We don't need to interpret the Bible through the creed. Just give me the Bible and so on. And um, and I just want to say you can be sola scriptura and care about church history. In fact, the way to be sola scriptura will involve church history because the, the best way to do sola scriptura is not to say, who cares how anyone else ever interpreted the Bible? It's 100% irrelevant to me. No, the, the church history is our guardrails. It, it keeps us on the road in our interpretation. And we believe that the Holy Spirit has been guiding the church throughout all history and how we interpret the scripture. It doesn't mean that they were inerrant. The only thing that is inerrant that we have on this earth right here, this word of God, it comes from our perfect God who never lies and always tells the truth and never makes a mistake. So the scripture is inerrant. Uh, church history is not. However, church history isn't irrelevant. And every Christian in all of time has held to the Nicene Creed. And to deny that creed in my, uh, I, I'm just going to say, to, uh, to deny that creed, we should, we should walk with tremendous caution with denying the Nicene Creed. Because to deny the Nicene Creed, I'm going to go ahead and say, uh, if you deny any part of it, I think that falls into heresy category. So uh, I, I would just be really hesitant with that. Not because Even the, the Nicene Creed. Even the clause? <laughs> well, 
Well, uh, I mean, even without the Phillies. <laughs> just kidding. Keep going. With or without. It's <laughs> such still a called the Nicene Creed. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I just I just wish Protestants, and I love Protestants. I'm, I'm Protestant through and through. I just wish we would have more respect for church history. And uh, I think it's a little proud to say, I got it all figured out, and I don't need 2,000 years of input on, on how the Bible has been interpreted because I'm, I'm better than everybody else. It's just a proud thing to say. Uh, church history is not the scripture, but it does inform our interpretation of the scripture. So I just, I just want to exhort my fellow Protestants to care about church history. Uh, okay, Dr. Yeah. Irons, uh, yeah, what about you? What uh, yeah. about your closing thought? Oh, Josh, well, before I give something? my closing thought, I just want to say okay. amen to what you just said. <laughs> that <laughs> Thank is, you. <laughs> that is exactly correct. And one thing that can be really helpful for people is to actually go back and read the church fathers. I mentioned already Athanasius's uh, works against the Arians. Uh, pick it up. I mean, you can find it online. Ccell.org has everything. All the church fathers, easy, accessible translations. And it's not, it's not that long and complicated. It's not all this like ornate philosophy or something. It's just exegesis. And mm -hmm. uh, you'll see how they interpreted these texts. And it's so encouraging to see that the church fathers, I mean, this is, we're talking about the fourth century. This is pretty early on. We're not talking about all the later accretions with Rome and the Pope and all this stuff. The church fathers were Bible students and they were exegeting the scripture. <laughs> they weren't making up, you know, systems of philosophy and theology and imposing on the text. And so I want to say amen to what you just said. But for me, the, the takeaway for me is this. Uh, it, it all goes back to the fundamental confession of faith that we as Christians have is that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, right? That's amen. Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi. That's the concluding statement of the gospel of john these things are written so that you might believe that jesus is the christ the son of the living god what do we mean by that what do we mean mm -hmm. when we say that he is the son of god it means he's eternally the son of god he's the divine son of god it's not just that he was you know in some sort of relationship with his father or that he was in, in a submission authority relationship to the father anything like that it's that he is the eternally divine son of god who shares the father's nature and that's what all of this theology all this intricacy of getting into the greek words and monogenes and whatnot it's all in service of that fundamental confession that is what it means to be a christian if you don't confess that jesus is the son of god you're not a christian that's what it means mm -hmm. it means he is divine and so all these doctrines and all the you know, ins and outs of it, they can be confusing and disheartening and people get discouraged because it's so technical, but really it's foundational to what it means to believe in Christ and to be a Christian. That's good. Thank you so much for coming on uh, the program today. I really enjoyed learning from you and gleaning from your expertise on the subject matter. For those of you who are out there, you want to have more conversations like this on the Trinity, 
on Christology, maybe the hypostatic union, all bunch of fun theology uh, uh, subjects that we discuss here on Remnant Radio all the time. We have playlists for the Trinity. We have playlists for Christology. If that's something you're interested in, go ahead and hit the subscribe button uh, and maybe check out the playlist. I'll go ahead and maybe link it up here for those who are watching the reruns. Uh, thank you so much for tuning into this program. And if you want to support the channel, we are crowdfunded. Top two links for PayPal and Patreon. Make sure to like and subscribe. Maybe share the video around to one of those friends who thinks you monogamous mean monogamous means unique rather than only begotten what a fun way to sign off the show guys thank you so much for tuning in we'll see you next monday tuesday wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m central standard time want to thank kairos classrooms for sponsoring this episode of remnant radio and if you're out there you've ever wondered hey i wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies well you need to check out kairos classrooms they offer greek and hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you it's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers and they help teach you the biblical languages of greek in Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.